Good morning. Really appreciate you. Thank you. Hey, if it weren't for them, you'd have me. And that would not be a pretty sight. Although I like to sing, but I don't flap my arms right. So, And I, I would just destroy... I mean, if you heard me on the drums or any one of those instruments, it would be, screeching would be closer to it. So thank you. Uh, Brian will be back with us next uh, Sunday, as will the rest of the team who have been away this weekend at a leadership retreat. Hey, while I have the chance, I want to wish you a happy new year. 2014. This seems like the other day we were you know, saving water in case of the Y2K crash or something. And now it's 2014. My, my, my. And uh, Shelly and I want to thank you for all the Christmas cards. I don't know that we got Christmas cards from each and every one of you. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not begging, but keep them coming. We love them. And we sit and we look at them together, and I whisper prayers for you. So if you want me to pray over you, send me a Christmas card next time. But uh, we don't send Christmas cards, I'm sorry to say, because there are just too many. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would just get a cramp writing, writing my name that many times. But if you want to send me a card, I do appreciate it. And we thank you for those of you who, uh, who sent us cards. We felt very loved by those. Hey, this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 12. And it called to mind an article I read around Thanksgiving. It really had an impact on me. 16 people on things they couldn't believe about America until they moved here. And I wanted to share just a few. Now, 16 people all made contributions, lengthy ones, so I've just culled a few things. And these are representative, representative of what these 16 people, representing places all over the world. And, of course, many of them mentioned that they, <laughs> they expected to see movie stars and celebrities everywhere, and they, they couldn't believe that you wouldn't. Um, but they couldn't believe that our bathrooms include the toilet and the sink. They couldn't believe clothes, washing machines. In fact, one mentioned uh, that people found it comical that I had washed clothes by hand before coming here. I had never known what it was like to have clothes washing machines. Uh, they couldn't believe that our showers have hot water, that hospitals look like five-star hotels. Couldn't believe that relatives, when they visit, often stay in a hotel. A man from Chile, when he first arrived, he couldn't believe how little we had to work for such money and how we had the audacity to complain about being overworked. He was surprised that he could make enough to pay bills, buy groceries, pay rent, and still afford a social life and luxuries like Xbox while working as a pizza chef. Back home, he worked 12 to 16 hours, 
six days a week with a six-hour shift on Sundays to make half as much. And while living with his mother, it took him eight months to afford his plane ticket and the first two months to live here that he uh, collected. Uh, Everyone mentioned houses are so large and not just for shelter. Cars, 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 cars are necessary, not a luxury. Gigantic cars with big engines, drive-through ATMs and stores. Everything is drive-through. One mentioned it left me speechless. And then to think that most purchases in the U.S. are on credit. Talked about all the things that people, even children, own. For example, iPhones. They were amazed at the return policy. Something we, you know, lots of little things we take for granted, but for other people, a return policy. Black Friday and the frenzy associated with it. And the fact that by and large, people do not carry cash. They were amazed. uh, They couldn't believe that there was still severe poverty, homelessness, that it actually exists even in America. And generally speaking, that the poor, in this person's opinion, are more obese than rich, which sometimes has to do with the food you eat. They were amazed that fruits and vegetables are so expensive, more so often than meat and poultry. They were amazed at bottles of water. They were amazed at huge serving portions. In one case, a person used the word ridiculous, and in another, humongous. The amount of food that Americans waste. For example, in student lunches, apples are given, and yet they're thrown away or left on the tables. Uh, One mentioned my Russian in-laws were also shocked by buffets. My father-in-law told everyone back in Moscow, no, really, you just pay to enter. And they mentioned uh, how it's easy to find obese people in the USA. Again, a lot of times having to do with what people eat. Some people are so obese obese, that they require a special electric scooter to carry them around. This sighting can be seen easily in Walmart, where obese people use scooters to shop for more food. And then waste. I was aghast at the amount of stuff people waste every single day. Food, electricity, water, paper. In India... We reuse stuff until it can only be thrown away. And I found also this theme. They were amazed at how prominent religion is in America. The number of churches and denominations, people actually going to church. Which brings us to Luke chapter 12 and what Jesus had to say on the occasion of a question that was asked of him about property and a dispute between brothers. 
And so we're going to begin reading in Luke chapter 12 at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And you is plural, so over both of you. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat nor about your body, what, will you, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. What a great problem. I have too much money. <laughs> you know, I have too many possessions. I have too much property. I have too much. I have more than I know what to do with. That's a problem people in America want to have. And yet, in light of what I shared, in the perspective of those who come to America, we already have more, much more than most people around the globe. This is Disneyland compared to other places. And yet, we want more, more, more. Like Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof, if I were a rich man. But he's warned. Remember, money is the world's curse. And to that, Tevye responds, may the Lord smite me with it, and may I never recover. Well, Jesus uses a simple story of a rich man to get at some daring truths and really, some ultimate questions about the meaning of life. Why we do what we do and what we live for. and Why we make the decisions that we make. Maybe there are some things that he brings out here that we ought to be thinking about that we aren't thinking about. Things that should be more of a focus in our life. 
There are three things I want us to notice, three thoughts that are prominent, obvious in what we read. In verse 15, in answer to the question of adjudicating, of arbitrating a dispute over property, Jesus says, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That cuts diametrically against the belief, the philosophy, the materialistic pursuit of our country, what we see on television, what is fed to us on a regular basis. You need more. You don't have enough. If you only get this, then you'll find true meaning, true value. Your life will count in a way that it doesn't count now. And Jesus flatly says, even in such an important issue between two brothers, he makes this point, life. And we could think of a prosperous life, life in its fullest sense, life abundant. He says, life abundant. It's implied, is not gotten in an abundance, you see, of things, of possessions, of property. A second thought which we need to underscore is in verse 20. This comes at the end of the very end of the man's life. Why at the end? Do we hear from God? Because this man omitted God, looked beyond God, around God, lived life without God. God did not enter into his decision-making, his thoughts, his choices, his priorities, his purposes. And so when his life is up, now God shows up, and he calls him a fool because he hasn't been wise. Why hasn't he been wise? Because he's excluded God. God's had, God's had no place, and God says at this time, who gets what you prepared for yourself? And that's a searching question. Who gets who gets? Do you and I even get? Because amassing, hoarding, treasuring isn't necessarily enjoying. Prosperity of life is not connected to amassing, hoarding, treasuring of things. Who gets it? And then verse 21, which is Jesus' conclusion. He says, treasuring for yourself is a tragic substitute for being rich toward God. He didn't say it in just those words, but that's very much his point. Because a man who, so to speak, had it all, had so many choices and options. His life has ended 
in a life squandered. It's a tragedy. And so Jesus says, it's no substitute for being rich in God. And we know that. That's why we're here. That's why Jesus' words mean something to us. Because God is not outside of our life, beyond our life, unimportant to our life. But we live in a world in which this culture and a society that is speaking an entirely different truth. I'll put that in air quotes because Jesus is saying it's a lie. And that lie sometimes seeps in to the way we see things, the judgments we make, the values that we keep, the way we treat others, the priorities and purposes of our lives. And that's why what Jesus emphasizes here is that when God is given first place, central place, the important place, the place of priority, when God is God, we're rich toward God in a way that runs diametrically opposed and against the current, the prevailing philosophy of our culture. And we're not fooled. By the way, I, I mean, that makes so much sense to me. It just doesn't mean we're lured, that we aren't lured, or that we don't fall into this, but I hope, and I think it's your experience too, that there's a check in your spirit. You go, wait a minute. I live by a whole different set of values than this world lives. And yet this parable strengthens and reinforces those values, those godly values. And I'll be talking about what it means to be rich in God. Well, I won't be talking about it as much as Paul and Jesus himself will, and I'll share that with you in just a moment. But I want us to understand that the rich toward God never confuse property and prosperity. And think about that, because for many people, Prosperity is property. It is possessions. Oh, you're prosperous. You have stuff, lots of stuff. Oh, you got the latest, the newest, the the gadget. Prosperity is being defined by our culture as property and possessions. And Jesus says, no way. That's not prosperity. But if you fall into that, you'll be craving, you'll be hoarding, you'll be searching, you'll be after things that will never satisfy your soul. And that quest will affect your judgments and your values. So we're not fooled. When we're rich in God, we're not fooled by a dispute over property because property is never confused with people. And that really is the thrust of what he's saying in verses 13 through 15. A brother comes to him. He says, Jesus, teacher, you know, show us the word. Settle this, arbitrate this dispute. And there is directives. There is law for how brothers are to handle inheritance. But Jesus says, 
Why do you want, why do you make me judge? Because there's something deeper going on here. The fact of the matter is, is that I think in Jesus' economy, in the economy of the kingdom, even in the economy of the gospel, we can think of justice in terms of getting our just share, our property. But the fact of the matter is, is that you can't get reconciliation that way. And two brothers will not come back together that way. And people's hearts are not bonded that way. In fact, it's over possessions that people and families, tribes and nations are divided. And Jesus points to something deeper. A problem when we associate prosperity with property. Value with possessions. And those Possessions and those properties trump people, people around us, people in our families, people in our lives, people that should matter much more. I mean, think about it. When God sent his son, he died for what? Property? Possessions? He died for people. God, in a a sense, said, this stuff really doesn't matter. Even your shortcomings and failings don't matter. You are more important to me. You're worth a son to me. How many of us would be willing to surrender? To say, you know what? There's something that matters more than this stuff. It's you. It makes me think of how sometimes we are so drawn, you know, to hold fast to things. I, I, I grew up in a poor home. I, it took a while for me to get over that desire to, you know, want to hold on and store up. I think in some ways uh, uh, my father kind of influenced that. He just pounded into my head, you know, and, Things don't grow on trees. There's no free lunch, yada, yada, yada. Venema, if you didn't know it, is Dutch. And I guess there's a a tradition there that has to do with being kind of frugal. But sometimes we can get so tight-fisted. Reminds me of a story Helmut Tielke told years ago. Told about a young child who had a vase. He got his hand into this expensive Chinese vase, and he was howling. He couldn't get his hand out, and his parents tried, and (laughs) special services came, and they tried because they didn't want to bust the vase. It was so expensive, but they couldn't get his hand out no matter how hard they tried, and finally they busted the vase and got his hand out, but when they got his hand out, they found that his hand was in a fist, He wouldn't let go of that little penny he had found at the bottom of that vase. Sometimes we're like that. We look way past the value of things that are so much more precious because of that single cent, that little penny. You know, we've had the benefit. I've been here 14 years, celebrated 14-year anniversary in December. 
14 years. I've never lived anywhere 14 years. You're rubbing off on me. But you know, in the, in the 14 years, we've had the benefit of a lot of wise leadership that's come from the business world. And uh, there's a lot between the church and the business world that can exchange hands. There are a lot of transferable concepts. But you know, there are some things that are not transferable. Because in business, it's all about product and profit. But I ask you, what is the product of the church? And what is the profit of the church? And if we get those things confused, sometimes we start to look past the product as though the profit were elsewhere. The product is people. You can't leave people behind. You can't climb over people. You can't abandon people or say certain people are expendable in the service of the gospel. That's insane. You can't treat people the way the business world can treat people and just say, hey, it's business. It isn't just business for the church because business isn't about the bottom line. It's not about profit. We don't make widgets. Sometimes that can get confusing, but it shouldn't be that way for Christians just in the church should be that way in our homes, and it should be that way in our world and in our lives. And I know a lot of times it isn't because we're tempted. We're drawn into this philosophy. It's so prevalent. Being a kid of the 50s, he did mention that. Hope I look younger than my age, but the fact of the matter is, grew up with television. And television just pipes that message into our hearts. We don't even notice it anymore. Sit back sometime and watch television with a critical eye. You should do that all the time. Hear those crazy claims, those stupid commercials. And some of them, they aren't even in words. They're in images seducing you. It gets in our blood. It's toxic. It gets into our homes. It gets into the way we see other people. Sometimes you need someone to come from outside of the USA to cause you to go, oh my goodness. Here I felt my life was incomplete because I didn't yet have this, but look at all that I have. More than they even account. That big lie. Sometimes what Jesus is saying is you can get it all and lose it all. Lose everything. Lose what's most important. Have you ever heard the expression Pyrrhic victory? It's a hollow victory. You win. You get the crown. You get the award. You can say, I won. But the cost to you costs you more than the award, more than the victory. I just happen to be. This is true. I've been reading the lives of Plutarch. Plutarch wrote, Plutarch lived about the time of Paul, a little bit toward the end of the first century. And Plutarch wrote about the lives of kings, great leaders, you know, like Alexander the Great, uh, Cicero, uh, Julius Caesar, Octavian, and so forth. And there's much to be learned. And, and don't, 
think, I, I don't mean to give you a suggestion that, you know, hey, I'm such a, but I had been reading a couple of biographies and it mentioned that these uh, illustrious bi- men of these biographies, such as Bonhoeffer, had been reading the lives of Plutarch. So I thought, you know, I've got one of the lives of Plutarch, but there's 11 volumes if you were to buy them. Um, and, and I thought I should start reading them. Well, I've read through Alexander and Cicero and Julius Caesar and Octavian and more. And I've, you know who I'm reading right now? Pyrrhus. There's a man named Pyrrhus. Pyrrhic victory, he comes from the life of Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus went up against the Romans, the most emerging great power on earth, and he beat them. He marched within just a few furlongs of conquering all of Italy. It would have changed the rest of history. Three battles, he won every one. But he lost so much, so much wealth and treasure and human life that he wasn't even able to hold on to what he had claimed. In fact, these are his very words. He was being congratulated and he says, if we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. There's your Pyrrhic victory. That's where the expression comes from, right there. But you know what's interesting? If you go back, I found that Sinius, who was a trusted aide and a very wise man, he was a colleague, he was a, a counsel, if you will, to Pyrrhus. And before they even marched on Rome, when, they, when he was just considering it, Sinius came to Pyrrhus and he said to Pyrrhus, and I quote, the Romans, O Pyrrhus, are said to be good fighters and to be rulers of many warlike nations. If then heaven should permit us to conquer these men. How should we use our victory? So in other words, he goes on to ask, and I'm going to just streamline this part because it's just somewhat lengthy. He says, so if we take Italy, then what? And then he says, if we take Sicily, then what? And then if we take Libya and Carthage, then what? And then Macedonia and Greece, then what? And then if we conquer, heaven permitting, all warlike nations and everything is subject to us, what are we going to do? And then, listen carefully, Pyrrhus smiled upon him and said, I'm quoting, we shall be much at ease and will drink bumpers, my good man, every day. In other words, like courts, we'll just, you know, drink and be merry. And he says, we'll gladden one another's hearts with confidential talks. And Sinius said to Pyrrhus, then what stands in our way now if we want to drink bumpers? and while away the time with one another. Surely this privilege is ours already, and we have at hand, without taking any trouble, those things to which we hope to attain by bloodshed and great toils and perils, after doing much harm to others and suffering much ourselves. Wow. But Pyrrhus disregarded it and went on. May we not be so foolish. In fact, this is the rich man in the parable of Jesus. And we 
who have an appreciation of God's rule and values and heart and spirit. We're not fooled by disputes over property, and we're not fooled by debauchery of prosperity. And I use the word debauchery, which is a strong word because of its extravagance, you know, the exaggerated effort to gain extravagant gains for personal and pleasurable use. And that's exactly what the rich man does. He pours it all on himself. Billy Graham said, the smallest gift I've ever seen is a man wrapped up in himself. This man's wrapped up in himself. In fact, he uses the personal pronoun I six times. He uses the possessive pronoun my five times. He speaks to his own soul, and there's no account given to God. C.S. Lewis said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. If, you, if God is not in our lives, I mean in a real way, in the decision-making, in the values, in the way we see others, then we're definitely going to be seduced by the lie that abundance of possessions brings abundance of life. Beware of wishing for an abundance of possessions. Beware of that definition of success. Rick Warren said, the most dangerous temptations, most difficult challenges, and most discouraging attacks come from success, not failure. You've heard me say, I think God made me a pastor because I probably wouldn't make it if I weren't. I am grateful for the regimen that God has given me. If I'm faithful to him to keep me in his word, to keep me focused on him, I consider that a luxury because I realize the challenges and the temptations that abundance and that kind of material definition of success can bring us. Max Lucado said, "Do do you feel better when you have more? Yes. And do you feel worse when you have less? Yes. Welcome to the prison of want, he said. What's the answer for this? To recognize God. Do you want to give, do you want to know, I'll give you a measuring stick for recognizing God in your life, day to day. It's the word, it's the disposition Gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude recognizes grace. We're all dependents of grace. Not only God's great lavish grace, but the grace of others in our lives. George Herbert said, Thou hast given so much to me. Give one thing more, a grateful heart. Karl Barth said, Basically and radically all sin is simply in gratitude. And you see, generosity flows out of gratitude because you recognize all of the graces and goodnesses. God's going to take care of me. Look at how he has lavished so much upon me. 
You become aware of his goodness all around us. Instead of looking at what we don't have, we rejoice. Joy enters our life because we realize all that we have, not only just in possessions and things, but in people in God's great creation. And it makes us willing to let go, to become unfisted with his goodness to us. John Grissom Before you read The Firm, The Pelican Brief, The Client, before Newsweek called him a commercial supernova, he wasn't an author. He was studying to become a small-town lawyer. And there was a decision that he made then, and it's a decision that he's continued to make throughout his life. And that decision he owes not only to his Christian faith, but the experience of a friend who at 25 was diagnosed with cancer and died later. And the friend summoned him, told him about the cancer. John Grisham couldn't believe it. He asked his friend, what do you do when you realize you're about to die? And his friend replied, it's simple. You get things right with God. You spend as much time with those you love as you can. Then you settle up with everyone else. Finally, he said, you know, really, you ought to live every day like you have only a few more days to live. I haven't forgotten these words. You see, that making God a priority is something that has to be rehearsed. We have to preach it to ourselves, not just on occasions where Jesus preaches to us through his parables. We're not fooled then, you see, by a decision of priority. It's already clear to us, but we have to reinforce it. What does it mean to be rich in God? Well, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17, 18, 19, he says, as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's a great definition of being rich toward God. But Jesus himself, even in this same chapter of Luke 12, also gives us this definition, starting in verse 29 and extending through verse 34. Don't seek what you are to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. You see, when God's not apart, that's what you pursue. And... Your father knows that you need them. Verse 31, indeed, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, and where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. I realize this isn't exactly Wall Street insider talk, but it's truth. And I think our prayer could be the prayer of Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. I was moved this week. I read uh, a letter, a letter that was from a 10-year-old. Well, excuse me, a 12-year-old. It was from a 12-year-old, and it had been written to herself. It was to be opened 10 years from now. It was to be opened in April 13th, 2023. This uh, 12-year-old, her name is Taylor Smith. She died just last year. And her parents found the letter. She'd written a letter to herself, and all over the letter it had been put, do not open until, and if you are not me, you know, (laughs) do not open under any circumstances. I want to read you a little part of the letter Her parents found it and uh, shared it. She's writing to herself now in the future. Dear Taylor, how's life? Life is pretty simple right now, 10 years in your past. I know I'm late for you, but as I'm writing, this is early. So congratulations on graduating high school. If you didn't, go back and keep trying. Get that degree. Are you, we, in college? If not, I understand. We do have pretty good reasoning, after all. Don't forget, it's Alana's 11th birthday today. Sheesh, 11 already. In my time, she just turned one. I didn't even get to go to that party because I was in Cranks, Kentucky for my first mission trip. I've only been back six days. Speaking of, how's your relationship with God? Have you prayed, worshiped, read the Bible, or gone to serve the Lord recently? If not, Get up and do so now. I don't care what point in your life right right now, get up and do it. He was mocked, beaten, tortured, and crucified for you. A sinless man who never did you or any other person any wrong. Now, have you gone on any more mission trips? And then after a little bit, she says this. Is Doctor Who still on? If not, what regeneration did they end with? You should go watch some Doctor Who. Later, though, you got to finish reading your own words of wisdom. That really struck me, you know, to read a letter from myself 10 years from now, admonishing me, admonishing me about certain things, and then telling me, Read your own words of wisdom. That's powerful to me in light of what Jesus says and what we've talked about this morning because we have to make Jesus' words, God's values, to be rich in him. We need to make them our own. 
And we need to listen to our own words of wisdom, making his words our words. That's the challenge for us each and every day, but especially when it comes to making decisions about people and what's important, what we're going to do with our money, how we're going to spend our lives, and that haunting question, who's going to get what you have treasured up? Let's be generous each and every day. Let's be conduits for his grace. I don't know if you noticed, but it was the land that produced his prosperity, not his hard work. Let's recognize what God has done in our lives and how much he takes care of us that we might be generous and giving, making people God puts in our paths and in our lives the recipients of all his grace. We stand with me. If you'd like to pray with me or pastoral staff or elders, as we close, we invite you to come after I say amen. But let me pray for us. Ask God's blessing upon you as we begin this new year. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your generosity, your grace, your goodness. And to remember that uh, we can have great prosperity apart from things because we are rich in you. We have you. We praise you for your son, the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. May we rejoice today. And we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you.